Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Adriel M. Trott, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Gender Studies at Wabash College. Her book, Aristotle on the Matter of Form, a Feminist Metaphysics of Generation, is just out from Edinburgh University Press. In this book, Trott argues for understanding the relationship of matter and form in Aristotle's work on the model of a Mobius strip. With the figure of the Mobius strip, we can identify two planes at any particular point, but taking in the figure as a whole, we see that those two sides are produced by a torsion of a continuous strip. Through this figure, Trott allows us to think anew with Aristotle, not just about form and matter, but also body and soul, male and female, and much else. Informed by and responding to feminist engagements with these issues, Trot challenges binary models of these couplets to show us innovative possibilities for thinking how we come to be and what we might become. Hello, Adriel, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's great to have you today. Uh, will you tell us a bit about yourself, uh, about your background as a philosopher, and how you came to write this book on Aristotle? Yes. So I work mainly in Aristotle. Uh, My first book was on uh, the concept of nature in uh, Aristotle's politics. I'm particularly interested in uh, the way that the concept of nature gets put to work in ancient thinking, but also in the history of philosophy. So I'm interested in uh, how it's used both in what I think of as useful ways, but also ways that can be exclusionary or that can produce hierarchies. So in the first book, I think about this, the way that nature has been used as what divides between more and less natural beings in ways that are often excluding those natural beings. And I, I, so there I'm interested in thinking about how Aristotle's account of uh, political life could be understood as being uh, open, always self-grounding and so concerned with its ground and needing to think about whether it's being inclusive enough along the lines of this conception of nature in Aristotle's physics, where he defines nature as an internal source of movement and rest. So I think that that understanding, Aristotle says that political life is natural. If you think about it in those terms, I think that you end up with a really robust and interesting conception of political life. But when I was working on that project and I was talking to people about it after that book came out, some of the resistance and criticism that I got was, well, maybe this notion of nature works in the politics, but it doesn't seem like it works at the level of the biology. That is, 
maybe nature can work like this once you have natural substances that are concerned with their ongoing existence. But if you look at how they come to be, it looks a lot like artifice. It looks like you have uh, a kind of imposition model where forms imposed on matter. And I, I was really, yeah, kind of concerned whether, about whether that was true and spent some time looking at the biological works, which people tend to not think of as the most interesting place to go philosophize. And I found, I think, uh, resources, not only for addressing that question about nature, but for thinking about some of the broader questions in Aristotle's metaphysics. So I'm excited about this effort to bring together my ancient interests with my more contemporary interests in uh, contemporary feminist thought. Um, hopefully that's what this book does. Yeah, no, it very much is this conversation between you move between people who are working on Aristotle, people who are working on feminist concerns, and people who are working on feminist concerns in Aristotle, and trying to show how this conversation about an ancient text can help us think now. Yeah, I think that this is an interesting question about what we think we're doing when we're doing the history of philosophy. Mm. And I've never thought that the reason to read the history of philosophy was just to be a scribe, just to say, I know exactly what that person thought, that it always seemed important to me that there was some significance for right now, for thinking now. And I, I think one of the reasons that I like to go to the ancients is that they are on the one hand so different and far away from how we think now. But on the other hand, I think that they're also still influencing, still affecting how we think now in ways that we might not even be aware of. And so that's what I want to try to interrogate. Mm. Um, so let's jump to the epigraphs for a moment, if you don't mind. Oh, um, yeah. Because they seem like this really um, important, actually, segue into the book. And it seems really important that you're talking that one of the epigraphs deals with Heraclitus and that he's warming himself since mm. he is such a theme of the book. And then um, Heraclitus and um, and his followers are set, such important uh, context for Aristotle that you deal with. So do you mind reading those epigraphs and then just talking a little bit about their importance? Yes, I will. And I appreciate the attention to the epigraphs. One wonders if people read them. So I'm glad to talk about them. The first is from Aristotle from Parts of Animals. Every realm of nature is marvelous. And as Heraclitus, when the strangers who came to visit him found him warming himself at the furnace in the kitchen and hesitated to go in, is reported to have bidden them not to be afraid to enter, as even in that kitchen divinities were present. So we should venture on the stuff of every kind of animal without distaste, for each and all will reveal to us something natural and something beautiful. What I like about this, so first, it is about Heraclitus, but I think it's important that it's Aristotle who's saying this, that Aristotle seems to share this position. Mm. I think that we tend to suppose these lofty philosophers like Aristotle aren't concerned or think that the lowly aspects of messy bodies aren't that important. And I, so I really liked how Aristotle is here saying even this, even this messiness, even these parts of animals that seem uh, the things that we want to hide away, that there's something uh, 
beautiful and marvelous to be seen and considered here. Mm. So yeah, I, I, I hadn't thought about as much about the Heraclitus and warming that Heraclitus himself is warming and that the whole book is thinking about what heat means for generation and how heat produces a, a unity between form and matter that's, I think, often underestimated. But yes, I think that's there too. I think the idea that Heraclitus is also seems like a poor, relatively poor, and um, so he's not in some grand setting here. He's in the kitchen by the fire that he's warming himself from, and that even there we can be doing philosophical work. Yeah, this is sort of the beauty of Aristotle, right? He's willing to talk about anything. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he does. Yeah, and he does. <laughs> yeah, like the meteorology came in extensively in your mm-hmm. book, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, so the second is a, a quote from Homer from the first book of the Odyssey. No one truly knows his own begetting. I was really struck by that line, that idea that we have it seems like what it is for us to be and how we come to be the central human questions. And yet we all have a distance from that experience that it's something we can't know. And it's something that we have to take on a kind of faith and trust from others when they report to us on how we came to be, which seems to be kind of contra what the philosopher wants. I don't want to have to take this on faith of someone else. So I think it situates how we approach these questions. There's already a distance that we have to them, even though it seems so intimate and so closely connected to who we are. And so embodied, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay, great. Thank you. Um, a thread throughout this book is about the relationship between nature and craft and mm. dealing with craft metaphors um, and what Aristotle is up to and what gets understood as craft-like and what gets understood as crafted. And you talk about how that distinction gets internalized into nature itself. Um, So will you talk about how the apparent division between craft and nature is important um, for your reading of Aristotle? Yes. Thanks for this question. I do think of this question as one of my fundamental questions that I'm still even though I've just finished this book about this that I'm still working on. So I find it to be very live to me. In uh, Physics Beta 1, Aristotle criticizes Antiphon. Antiphon has this argument that he says, well, we know that nature has to be matter because if you plant a bed and it was capable of reproducing of something coming to grow from it, the wood would grow. You wouldn't get another bed. And that's such, like, what is this image? It's so, I mean, I think it's also a reference to uh, uh, Odysseus's bed in uh, Mm -hmm. Homer. So there's this sense of, like, the bed coming out of the earth. What does this mean? And how does this stand for uh, an image of nature? Aristotle, I I think what Aristotle is saying to Antiphon there is uh, your problem is that you think that the artifact is the same as the natural object or the natural substance. But 
The bed, the reason that the wood would come to be and not the bed is not because the wood is the material of the bed, but because the wood as the natural element of the tree has its own source of movement within itself where the bed doesn't. So the source of the bed coming to be is from outside of it. It's in the idea in the mind of the bed maker. And when the bed is complete, the bed maker, the work of making it continue to be the bed, that is separate from it. It doesn't continue working on making it what it is in the way that the natural substance has that capacity to continue working on itself within itself. So unfortunately, I think that many, that often the way that people talk about nature in Aristotle continues to focus on the analogies to craft and to take those analogies to be the the center point from which we can think about nature. And I th- by doing that, I think you end up with being able to think form and matter more distinctly than natural substance permits. So what I think that that accomplishes is the, if if form and matter can be separate, then the way that form and matter generate seems to involve a mastery, a kind of imposition of form on matter where, ma- where form takes the control of matter. The form can be understood for its own ends, but matter is always for the sake of form. So I think craft uh, then becomes that that whole model of mastery and I am looking for ways to think about and to see in Aristotle how nature is not following that model. And why he's using it. Well, yeah, and why he's using it. So we it's kind of also Aristotle's fault that we keep <laughs> yeah. going back to that model because he keeps using it. But I like to say that the truth of a disanal- of an analogy is in the disanalogy. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's right here, that you often find – Aristotle saying, oh, it's kind of like this. When you look closely, you can see, well, yeah, that's useful for explaining this one part, but that's not a global explanation. It falls short. Right. And in, in the last chapter, you you look at these other metaphors to try to show, right, Aristotle's not just using a craft metaphor. He uses all these other metaphors to try to get us into his model. Right. The householder metaphor. I think the rennet metaphor is one that I'm particularly interested in. And the whole story of how that the rennet that is capable of curdling the cheese was something they became aware of because they would use animal stomachs to hold milk when they traveled. And then the movement and the heat and the rennet in the lining of the stomach would produce the cheese. This idea that you get all of the parts of what Aristotle's talking about. You get movement, you get heat, uh, and you get something that seems to be the source of this animating, this change. I think that right. makes so much sense to me in a way that I think that the craft model doesn't quite get to. Hmm. So, so what does all this have to do with sexism? Um, or in other words, how, how, are, how are these concerns about form and matter that you're working on relate to how we think of sexual difference? Right. That's a good question. I do call it a feminist metaphysics of generation. So Yeah, no, wow. it's there. It's there. So I'm just trying to give you the opportunity. <laughs> yes, right. There. Yeah. Right. Appreciate that. So 
Aristotle associates the form with male and the matter with female in generation of animals pretty explicitly. And that that association has is has a complicated history. So there the ways that people have thought about models of sex difference in terms of a, a one sex model or a two sex model open some questions about where to situate Aristotle. And I think that Aristotle doesn't quite fit into either. And that in itself is uh, uh, worth considering. So what does it mean if he doesn't quite fit into either? So on the one sex model, the male is the male is sex and female is lack of sex. And uh, the female can approximate, can come closer and farther away. There's a sense of so Galen, uh, who's a little bit later, but very clearly drawing on Aristotelian ideas, describes the difference between male and female, where the female is an inversion of the male. So uh, you only really have male organs and everything that is associated with the female is just kind of the opposite or a lack of, uh, or e- even the empty space of, so really literally. Right, like the sucking up into the body. Yeah, yeah. And that that difference is drawn on the basis of uh, the degree of heat. So uh, if if there's sufficient heat in the process of generation, then uh, you would have a male. And if there was, if it was cooler, then the female would come to be. That brings up all kinds of interesting uh, aspects because – as some scholars have argued, you actually see in uh, adult women amongst the Greeks this these stories about how if a if her husband was away, then a, a woman might take on male characteristics. So that even the the things that we associate with gender and think of as cultural, that even they would lead to changes in the body so that in that way you already find amongst the Greeks this challenge of that, of the distinction between like here is what's really cultural and here is what's just natural or given that even the natural given things can be affected by changes in social settings. So On the one sex model, you could see that there are ways that Aristotle's like that because he talks about the male as what has sufficient heats to concoct to a certain degree so that the semen can do the animating life. And the menses is from a similar residue, but it doesn't quite have that degree of heat. But then on the two sex model, the idea was, well, male and female really have different essences, different capacities of contribution altogether. And that seems like it might um, retrieve something for the female. But in fact, what happens is that when you have that kind of what seems like a true difference, then there's a hierarchy that comes into play where those essences are judged as one being more important than the other. So on that model, it looks like Aristotle also could be said to be following the two-sex model because he associates the male with form and the female with matter and thinks of these as two separate principles that have to be separate for the 
the metaphysics to work, to make sense. So I think that we continue to associate male with meaning giving, definition, offering, the forming capacity for the world. And we associate the female with material, with what needs to be given order, with what doesn't have uh, the capacity of its own. So that makes the female the nature to the cultural and historical capacities of men. And I think what Aristotle, what my reading allows us to see in Aristotle is that the the male, the male and thus the forms dependence in generation on this material power of vital heat, which I spend some time talking about how I think this notion of vital heat is itself material and not just some like divine element or uh, some some supra material capacity. It's it's important that it is material that that the formal work of the semen to animate depends on it having this kind of material. That that allows us to see that what seemed like this strong distinction that allowed form to be separate from matter and therefore to be to impose itself on matter is really called into question and is really shown to have more of a, a need for that material, that material that is often associated with the female or the feminine or woman. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the the capacity of the matter of the female itself looks like it has more power and it's not just getting that power because of what form brings to it. And we see various ways that that power allows it to disrupt moves of to, in generation, for example, in the account of sex differentiation. So I want to say then that the way that there are several levels of how this has to do with sexism. And one is the historical sense of uh, how uh, since Aristotle, there has been this association that is ongoing where we associate men with the formal historical uh, cultural able to change the world kinds of capacities and the female with the, uh, the the natural the the cycle of reproduction that doesn't change the givenness of the body that needs some external influence in order to become manageable mm-hmm. so I think there's that level and then then there's the way of thinking about how the case that I'm making from Aristotle's account of generation can challenge that and can show how it's really hard to think of sexual difference in Aristotle either as wholly formal or as wholly material and what that, that inability to reach that kind of conclusion shows us about the relationship of form to matter, which is why I bring in this image of the Mobius strip to try to think that relation. Yeah, will you talk about that a little bit? It was really interesting. Um, in part, so people who are familiar with Elizabeth Gross, Gross's mm-hmm. work will be familiar with the Mobius strip, but she specifically says, and you quote her on this, it's not that great for understanding transformation. <laughs> and you use it really effectively to talk about generation as a mode of transformation. So will you talk about that model for understanding form and matter and how you you employ it to understand generation? Yeah, so I'm, 
I'm trying to show how form is more dependent on matter than commonly just thought. And matter is more independent from form than we tend to suppose. So I even in talking about this project to people, I find that it's really hard to talk about matter as having any character of its own without people supposing that what that means is, oh yeah, it has that because of form. And so to, to find a way to talk about materials power that is interconnected to, but not reducible to form, I found the Mobius strip to be a useful image. And I, I, I think it helps us see how there's a point at which these seem to move into one another, but not in a way that sets them up as uh, either the opposite of or the lack of or that which the one only has meaning in terms of the other. So there's something about that, the way that the Mobius strip allows us to create difference that still has an interconnection that I found really useful. Yeah, that image of torsion, I think, mm -hmm. is really helpful. Right, like the generation is at the place of the torsion. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's the part where I began to really understand what you were doing with that model. Um, you have this great line, it's in the conclusion, but you, you say that the book offers a model that shows materials independence in Aristotle's metaphysics and natural forms multiple ways of being dependent on material. And when I read that, I was imagining that point of torsion, right? Where mm. it's not that they collapse into one another and it's not that they're totally distinct, but there's this interdependence um, at that point of torsion. Right. So I think that there is interdependence, but that it's weighted differently. So mm. I think that that we've long been looking at and talking about the dependence slash interdependence of material on form, mm. but we mm -hmm. haven't really given as much uh, credit of, to that interdependence and in form. So I wanted to switch that. So uh, yeah, I think that's why I don't really think that the book is about the form of matter, because I think that that still ends up saying matter has some capacity and power because of form. I want to resist that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and this, I think, really ties into your discussion of prime matter, because um, there's a way, I, at least now I'm hearing it as, there's a way in which prime matter then becomes sort of like a, a bid to understand matter's importance, but sort of all already under the notion that it's really form that gives matter what it needs. So will you, you argue against a notion of prime matter? Um, so will you sketch that, why you don't think that Aristotle's got this concept of prime matter? Yeah. So if Aristotle does have a concept of prime matter, then I think my project would fall apart. Uh, mm -hmm. Because it seems like it's in the idea of prime matter that we see matter as just the pure potential, the, the stuff that has to get taken up by form. So... I guess there's a general larger argument against prime matter, or then there are the particular places that are based on the specific texts that scholars who argue in support of prime matter go to. Uh, my, my larger argument is uh, 
prime matter supposes a kind of principle that it's never itself shows up in the world, but seems to play this necessary role. That depends on, I think, a certain reading of the metaphysics that requires matter to look like that kind of bare given. Hmm. The places where people go, uh, so one of them uh, that most students who've studied some of Aristotle's metaphysics know is the whole discussion of how generation occurs with the use of the substratum. This is in Physics 1-7. And there the argument is about how change occurs. And for change to occur, there has to be something that remains the same through change. And so people have looked at that and said, well, if this is the case for the way that the change of attributes occur in a substance where the substance is the substratum, then it seems like matter must be that that thing that remains the same in a generational change where you go from not being formed to form and matter stays the same through. And so then you don't have this problem that the sophists argued change is impossible because then we go from not being to being. So matter seems like the principle that allowed Aristotle to say, no, something remains the same. So it's not pure non-being to being. But I think that that passage you can see how you can have a principle and understanding of matter that remains the same without that material being something prime and uncharacterized. And I think that Aristotle's own account in the biological works of uh, the specific material, and then, as you mentioned, this really gets worked out in the meteorology when we talk about the ways that elements change into one another that even in that kind of change, what remains the same is not some prime matter that has no character of its own, but one of the elemental forces. So that the sense that fire can become the cycle of each of the elements, that fire and air and earth and water can move into one another because one of the forces stays the same. So you end up with the cold remaining through the change. So I think that shows even in the most basic kind of change at the level of the elements, it isn't that there's some more basic thing that we can't say anything of except that it's prime matter that... Mm that remains the same. So I want to reject that. And I think that, well, the often the Greek in those places is referring to a kind of first material and that that becomes a technical term when commentators want to locate a, 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 a strong distance from form. So something that has this remove that then becomes its own technical thing that's outside. So I think many of the places, the texts that people go to to support prime matter end up with those kinds of problems that it seems to be doing a, playing a particular role at a particular place, not necessarily the kind of technical term. The other big place or the important text that people go to to make the case for prime matter is when Aristotle is cataloging the various 
candidates for being and for substance of what could possibly be substance. And one of them is more, uh, the hupokamenon or the substratum could be. And the way that Aristotle talks about that substratum is in terms of a material that's stripped down. And some scholars argue this is Aristotle's account of matter that's being rejected. But I, I follow those who say, no, Aristotle's here setting up a position of how people think about matter that needs to be rejected if this is the way that they're thinking about the substratum, that the substratum as just matter stripped down would not be a candidate for substance. But substance is a substratum in another sense, not the stripped down version, but substance yeah. that has its own being. Yeah, it turns out that the devil is in the details. <laughs> yeah, no, I can really, it's really helpful because I can hear how much there's a way in which if you assume matter's dependence on form, prime matter becomes sort of this um, necessary prop to the whole system to try mm -hmm. to understand that. But it, once you are letting that go and you have a different model, then prime matter less and less makes sense mm -hmm. even to understanding what Aristotle is up to. Right. And I think that's also connected to, uh, I want to reject there being species form in Aristotle as well. And so right. I think if you, that those are a pair species form then becomes the way form most is. And that looks to me like some kind of hovering form that needs to find a way to instantiate itself. And so it needs this, it needs to be matched by prime matter, which then becomes the, the way that it can have an instantiation. So I think then if you start with that assumption, then you have all of these problems about how they get joined. But if you recognize that form is already in some sense uh, working in these material ways and that matter is always already having power, then you don't have that kind of problem. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there's this sort of hinge chapter then, um, and it's the title is the feminine and the elemental in Greek myth, medicine, and early philosophy. And it's there that I see this, you've done all this um, marvelous work using this model and looking at setting up this reading of, Aristotle, and then you give this context, mm -hmm. um, this context of myth and medicine and the philosophers that he would have been engaged with. Um, and I see it as that's where you're making this move to really make the connection to the feminist concerns and to sexual difference and to generation. So do you mind talking about that? Um, I loved this chapter. <laughs> I was just like this, this stuff about Pandora and the jars opening. Yeah. And, um, so will you talk about, will you talk about how you know, why you go to myth and medicine to the, to the early philosophers here um, and how it's helping us understand that discussion is helping us understand these biological and metaphysical concerns that you're grappling with. That's a great question. I, I'm concerned that we often read these texts as, as if they're just like metaphysical arguments or uh, biological arguments and not arguments with other people in a context. And I've, so I, I guess I felt myself like I was missing that. And it was exciting to me to feel like that world could get fleshed out. And that helped me see, on the one hand, just basic understanding of where Aristotle is doing something different than his contemporaries and where his uh, claim is not necessarily. Uh, original, but the way that he's working with it is original. So uh, 
for example, the association with of the female with moisture is very much in the Hippocratics and Aristotle's taking that up and doing something specific with it, but he doesn't invent that. He doesn't. So I think that he gives more, uh, well, he follows the sense that there is a contribution from the female and that it has a specific character. The Hippocratics think that the moisture can be very problematic and they think that it can like fail to flow and they then make these accounts of how uh, like sex is the cure to uh, basically like women's hysteria. Uh, so, so there was that kind of thinking about it, but I also did want to work out the understanding of how, how were Greeks thinking? What was the backgrounds assumptions of what, what female conjured for the Greek thought? But they're just the, the average Greek citizen. So uh, <clears throat> the mythology then I find to be, well, complicated. Uh, many, so in the politics, there's this line um, where Aristotle talks about the, um, the reference to the Eumenides and how Apollo is saying, well, there's not the same, the, there's not the same responsibility to, um, to the mother because she's just the, the carrier. So I wanted to spend some time with that and spend time with the other depictions of uh, the female around that idea. And it was the two instances, the Athena birth and Dionysus birth, I think question the notion that the, the Greeks thought that they could do without the female. So even in those cases, Athena, for example, is uh, the daughter of Medus. Gaia has predicted that the first child of uh, Medus will be a daughter the second child will be a son who will overthrow zeus zeus is very upset about this so he tricks Medus into turning into a fly and then he swallows Medus. and it's from uh, so Medus, who's pregnant with athena is swallowed by zeus now athena is uh, within zeus and so at some point athena is ready to be born and Zeus is uh, screaming throughout the earth and Hephaestus comes and splits his head open and Athena comes out. I think there's so many really captivating details about the story, but it's, it's important that Zeus is not the one who uh, is, I mean, in a way he is, but he's not, Medus is pregnant with Athena and she's still, the mother, she's still the carrier of Athena in an important way. Uh, Zeus can't get away from that. Uh, and then uh, Zeus also is not able to really birth Athena without the technical technological intervention of Hephaestus. So what I think these stories are capturing is the sense that the Greeks knew that they needed women for reproduction, and this produced a kind of anxiety. 
And that anxiety was about how they, they knew they needed women, but they couldn't control the sight of the woman's body. They didn't have access to it. They couldn't see. So there's all of this language about the male um, be like sowing the field of the female. Uh, this idea that when there was work that was needed then for reproduction, then it was male work. But when they when you just have like Gaia asexual reproduction, then that's like female. Um, the sense that men wanted to work on reproduction, but felt like it was always outside of their grasp. And this was part of why they needed to have the control of women's bodies. And I think it also reflects the the order of uh, the Greek social life and family life. So uh, the women would be kept in private, more isolated and outside of public eye. And that also created a kind of anxiety for men. Like, what are the women doing? What are, how are we actually, are they doing the reproductive work that we need to undergird society or not? Uh, so I think you see this, Return. So uh, Pandora is another example. Pandora is, uh, she's the belly. So the word for womb and belly is a similar word. Uh, the sense that she's the source of reproduction, but she's also uh, seems to be the source of producing new children whose bellies need to be filled. She, The woman is herself is ravenous, that that's a problem. The, the jar that Pandora, from which she releases the ills of the world into the world, you could think of that jar as the womb. The womb is the source of the ills of the world. So you can see again the tension of, well, we want that. We, we need reproduction, but we also can't control the body that is the source, the site of reproduction. I think you get that also when the you see discussion of women, women's blood as the sacrificial blood for the community. Uh, Iphigenia is a good example of this. So Iphigenia is sacrificed, literally sacrificed for the, for Agamemnon, for the ships to sail. She's the ruse under which she is sacrificed is that she's going to be married to Achilles. So there's this close connection, I think, between sacrifice and marriage and reproduction that also returns uh, in Clytemnestra. So she, she, her not having her blood revenged is uh, what allows the grounding of justice in the humanities where Athena is stopping the cycle of revenge which makes Clytemnestra's blood the kind of final sacrifice that establishes justice. And then you find also in the pre-Socratics, the much of the discussion about moisture and water, these kinds of powers that have something uh, productive that are independent. So I wanted to bring all of that together to show it how what Aristotle is doing is not in a vacuum and the ways of considering it otherwise can also fit into that story in that context. Yeah. And then you have Aristotle, this um, really keen observer, this really skilled observer. So you give that context and then you have what Aristotle does from that context. 
Um, and so one of the things you talk about you, is that Aristotle thinks that um, semen and menses are developed from the same mm. process, but that the male contribution, the semen reaches a higher capacity, right? So we're, he's in this context, he's trying to work out, I think he's you know responding to these anxieties and he's sort of making these observations and he thinks, you see this interdependence then of semen and menses and that there's a higher capacity to the semen. Um, so will you talk about that, that higher capacity and why it's important to generation? Um, and then I'm going to ask you, you know, I'm gonna, then I have some feminist concerns about the idea that semen has this higher capacity. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think I appreciate that, the concern with that notion of it being higher. Mm. But what I want to argue is that by finding that higher to come from this material capacity, it's difficult to talk about that, that higher capacity itself being something that is a wholly other than what is female or what is material. Mm. So, I don't, I don't want to deny that those kinds of hierarchies are at work there, but I do want to say that I think that those hierarchies are fluid and that they have a material basis, which makes it difficult to turn around and say from those hierarchies that you can make this judgment about the relationship of form to matter in that normative way. Because ultimately you could say the formal capacity of semen to animate depends upon this material capacity, which traditionally we've associated with the female. So mm, here in this yeah. place, what's happening is that, yeah, this is the formal capacity that comes from the male and it is doing this work that seems to be more central for bringing into existence this new offspring. But that capacity comes from this this vital heat that itself is a material capacity understood through like what so all Aristotle spends all this time talking about the air and the foam and the penuma the, all the things that go toward accomplishing that and that that focus on how the material is constituting the semen I think challenges our sense that oh because this is higher this therefore can allow us to assume that normative metaphysics in relation between form and matter yeah, interesting. Yeah, I know that as you started speaking, I was like, oh, right, because the divisions, if I was sort of internalizing the very division that you say is getting um, treated very differently here, that's being, that is, it has much more, he has a much more complex model than I was assuming. It's so hard uh, to get away from. It's become, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, will you talk a little bit about um, what does it mean that the female contribution to generation can loosen? the male's ability to yeah. produce offspring like itself. Yeah. I, I think that's another place where you see this kind of anxiety, like that sense of, yeah. oh, the female, here she goes. Because <laughs> uh. why, yeah, right, if the male has, if coming out of that kind of myth chapter, if the male has all this power, then why don't offspring just, right, are just, you know, stamped with the mark? So I think, again, I would think about that, that pointing to the power of the matter, of what's happening there. I think you see 
even in the conditions necessary for reproduction, this sense of the material contributing in a positive way and the material itself having this power to change. So if Aristotle, he does, if, if he does define uh, <laughs> in this way, uh, then it seems like, which is the male is what has the capacity to uh, concoct in another to the capacity where it can concoct in another, which is to say the male can produce an offspring that also can reproduce a male offspring. So that mm-hmm. kind of cycle of uh, the male can reproduce the one who can reproduce in, the, in, the, in another and so forth. Like, if that's the case, then when the male from this loosening that the material has, the menses, female material has intervened in, when the male is unable to, to produce another who can reproduce in another, then it seems like the male has ceased to be male in that place because the male has not done the thing that Aristotle says defines the male. I think you get all of this all of these ways that there, what we assume as a clear binary is really upset in that process, thinking about it in that, in the terms of that process. Yeah. Do you want me to say more about that? Right. I would. Yeah. Do you mind saying a little more? Cause I, I just, it's so, it doesn't, I mean, this is, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road, yeah. right? This is where you take that model to generation. So. Right. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> If you think about the the male's work as this work through a kind of heat, and that that kind of heat is going to allow for the menses to become alive in a way that that heat from the semen is now going to become heat internalized in the menses. So that's the mm. whole that's the whole game. How how the animation occurs when that capacity to heat from outside becomes the capacity to heat from within the menses. So when that happens in a way that the conditions of the menses are affecting uh, the semen and its internalized heat in such a way that it doesn't fully master or fully gets the sense of animation that is of the highest capacity of the heat or the material has, as Aristotle says, loosens this, uh, the, the hold of the male over the menses, then you get the female offspring instead. And I think you're right to point to the ways that the female offspring seems like the the mistake, the monstrosity, it's gone wrong here. Um, and I don't deny that that's the case, but I do think the fact that that's a material process that seems to have led to that is uh, changes the conceptual apparatus around which we think about how we understand form and matter. Yes, I, that, yes, that's true. Yeah. And it, which means then um, trying to understand hierarchy is a different project mm-hmm. on this model. Mm-hmm. Right. It's much more complex than just Aristotle saw females as deficient males. And that's the end of the story. That's enough. Right. Um, 
Right. And I think that gets back to because you have something like the Mobius strip relationship here, you can't point to in that very precise way or say, here is where this is material and here is where this is for. Yeah. 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 Because of the other, I mean, I think another thing you point out um, is that that female ability to loosen is a capacity. Yes. It's a, it's a positive character. It's not itself on the way we tend to think about it, just something that the matter has because form has somehow bestowed the power upon it. Right. Right. Um, okay. So, well, what are you working on now? Oh, yes. The dreaded question. I can't wait to hear what you're doing next. <laughs> uh, I have a couple different projects that I'm working on on Plato right now. A oh, cool. reading of Plato's cave that I think challenges some of our assumptions about um, how we <clears throat> tend to think that what happens in the cave is uh, not important and uh, unable to give us some conception of how the world is. So mm. on that, I'm, I'm also working on a um, project in the Protagoras, so some Plato things. But in, in working and talking about this project on Aristotle's biology, I have been thinking more about developing a project whose whole, instead of the using places like the politics and the biology to think about the relationship of uh, nature to artifice in Aristotle, thinking about it from the position of the metaphysics, considering how, how to work out and develop that sense of how conceptions of nature in Aristotle tend to assume artifice in the literature and how, how that has affected how we understand Aristotle. So I think that's a more long-term project that I still want to think about. Can't seem to get away from it. Yeah, cool. Well, and so in the um, in the work on the cave metaphor in Plato, will you again be in conversation with Arigre as you were in this book? I'm more in conversation with Arendt in that. Oh. Um, but I do, I actually, I have written on Arigre's reading of the cave. Uh, and so there's some of that concern. Arendt has this reading where she thinks that Socrates saw something worthwhile in the political space of appearance, which you could say the cave is. And Socrates thought the work of philosophy is to refine and consider and to mutually try to enhance one another's perception of what is. And that Plato was dissatisfied with basically with the Athenians for killing Socrates. And so he sets up the forms in order to say once and for all, there's got to be some knowledge outside of this that would make the philosopher be accepted. But my argument is from the position within the cave, there's no way that the people sitting in the back of the cave looking at the shadows can tell that the person returning has seen the forms and therefore, it seems more like what Plato is trying to do is to make us all better thinkers on our own rather than anyone willing to accept someone's claim that they know best to know. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's exciting. Thanks. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was, I learned so much reading this book and then getting to talk with you about it. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. This has been really 
useful and productive. I look forward oh, to hearing what people okay. think about the book. Yeah, well, we will see. Thanks so much. All right, take care. You too.